to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and someone who just got done with like the worst cold I've ever had in my life, nine days. But the one positive that I took away from this cold is I got to watch a great movie. Uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono's Above Us Only Sky. And so it was a movie about um, the song Imagine. And one of the things um, I had forgotten about is how uh, John and Yoko took out big billboards and it said, war is over if you want it. And I'm wondering, can the climate chaos be over if we want it? Can factory farming be over if we want it? Can the decline of pollinators be over if we want it? The deadening of American soils, can it all be over if we want it? And... What power do we have to create the world we want, and how does food fit into this? My in-studio guest is well-prepared to answer these questions, John Steinman. Hi, John. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show, Laura. Yeah, so, um, hey, can we have the world we want? Well, when speaking of food, which is certainly where I focus my attention, I think uh, I've been traveling all over the country for the past, well, over the past five months, about four of those months, visiting with people who are particularly choosing to shop at food co-ops where these types of grocery stores are trying to cultivate this type of future that you're speaking of. And I think the more we can steer ourselves to eating in the ways that uh, certainly food co-ops for 40 plus years have been cultivating, I think we can have that possible future that you speak of where we can have an end to a lot of the challenging impacts of the food system right now. And certainly this is uh, a possibility, and it's one that I've been walking around, driving around the country, speaking of. Yeah. So let's uh, back up a little bit. Um, Tell me uh, where your story begins in this food journey. Sure. You know, I uh, so I'm a Canadian, and Mm -hmm. coming here through the Twin Cities and uh, throughout Minnesota, Wisconsin, on a uh, book tour. But leading into my book, I spent about 15 years as a journalist looking at the food system. I spent uh, five of those years on the radio from a cooperative community radio station in British Columbia, where I live. And I spent five years hosting a deconstructing dinner radio show and podcast. Wow. So now you're back on radio. Here I am back on the radio. I've done a few of these now over the past few months and uh, certainly something I am familiar with and love doing. Uh, Most of what I was looking at were many of the subjects I'm sure your show explores. The getting behind the shelves of the grocery store, looking at the food system, where our food is coming from. And this was a show that began in 2006. And so it was at a time when this was really, I think, um, re-emerging if you will, in a new way, you know, where this idea that we now might refer to as the local food movement or the good food movement started to emerge. Certainly where I lived in British Columbia, this idea of the 100-mile diet was emerging out of British Columbia. And so, you know, it was something where this was a focus of my life for five years. It evolved into a television series. And my focus was all around food for that period of time. And within that, I got engaged in my community. Uh, as I was learning every week about a new issue, it, was, it, was, it wasn't possible to continue eating and operating the way that I had. Mm-hmm. You know, as I learned, for example, about uh, where our wheat is coming from, it f- moved me into becoming a community development organizer of Canada's first community-supported agriculture project for grain. And okay. so these were things I started to that, do. That, that's, yeah. that's what, let's slow down. So mm-hmm. where, what was the problem with the wheat in, in the system that, we, that you were experiencing that you kind of disrupted and created a different thing? What, what, are, what are the problems with wheat? Well, one of the things I certainly learned where I lived is that um, in this area of British Columbia, it had once been a breadbasket of grain production, wheat being one of them, uh, particularly in the Creston Valley. And I was looking at my diet. I was looking at where all of the bread products or crackers, pizza crusts, everything that involved wheat, I was looking at where it was coming from and realizing how much of my grocery dollars were ending up into these products and then getting sent beyond my community into the rest of the world and all of that at one point was actually staying within my region for folks who were eating those products in my region and so i saw this potential well if we were growing these products here in this case 50 60 years ago uh, i would love to be able to bring that back so i can know that my grocery dollars are actually staying here in the region and so this was one of the big pieces that really influenced and inspired uh, myself as well as many of the other folks who were involved in getting that going into reaching out to local farms in the area and saying hey do you want to grow this grain again so that was a big part of it and then i also learned 
just how little at the end of the chain the farmer is receiving for our wheat. Um, in most cases, it's anywhere for conventional wheat, somewhere around 10 to 13 cents per dollar ends up in the pockets of the farmers. Whereas I saw an opportunity to take that dollar and put it right into the farmer's pocket. And that was something we did. Yeah, and well, like one of my guests a long time ago was an organic f- farmer, Bob Quinn. So people can go online and get more information about Bob Quinn. But he's from the Montana area, and he went back to his family farm after getting a Ph.D. and found out the same math that, hey, this system is not working for farmers. It's reliant on a lot of chemicals that's polluting our local waters, and that's really um, the rural areas are in crises because these larger entities have taken over, and they're sort of extracting all of the wealth outside of the community mm-hmm. and so how do we build that wealth back up mm-hmm. and you know food is really a, can be a linchpin mm-hmm. this is this is what excites me the most about this work you know and certainly this is where i focused my work my attention my work as a journalist is really seeing the possibilities of our grocery dollars supporting not just our communities particularly if we're living in more rural or smaller cities, but our neighborhoods as well within larger urban centers and that possibility of taking our grocery dollar and really making sure more of it can stay within where we are buying our food. And um, so one of the statistics you have um, is that before the big uh, retail merger waves of the 1990s, about 17% of America's grocery dollars went to four retailers. What's that number today? Today, you know, we're looking at about 67% uh, for five companies. For four companies, it's about 60%. So, as you say, yeah, 17% of our grocery dollars, uh, 20, what was it, 1990s? 1990s, yeah. 1990s, four retailers were taking in 17% of our grocery dollars. 20 years later, 2014 or so, we were looking at about 60% of our grocery dollars ending up in the pockets of four companies. And that's pretty substantial when we think of the grocer as really being a gatekeeper to our kitchens or a gatekeeper to where food's being produced. You know, it all funnels through what I often refer to as a bottleneck. Yeah, and then we look at, um, I would say it's a tragedy of of factory farming. And if we did to cats and dogs what we do to pigs and chickens, there'd be outrage. And the the factory farming is, is tragic, and it's tragic for the water. And in, in so many ways, I, I see it, 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 it is an immoral. But is part of the reason why there's so much factory farming is because of the limited outlets, because of the way that the grocery stores are owned? Does that contribute to factory farming? I think it contributes. You know, I certainly think part of the reason why we've seen such a proliferation of that type of food production is in part because of our demands, not just as consumers, but really the whole system trying to demand a cheap food product. So if what we want is the cheapest food possible, the system has, you could say if you take away the ethics, has brilliantly figured out how to produce cheap food, you know ethics aside, right? It's done exactly what we've asked it to do, um, if this is what we want. And often I think the disconnect is that we don't see, of course, what's happening. Uh, We walk into the grocery store and we see the final product, but we don't see what's really happening on the farms. And so, of course, more and more we're starting to see this. It's shifting perspectives, not just on welfare, but on the environmental impact of this type of food production. And I do think the grocery sector can take some responsibility for that, too, by by really painting a picture of what it isn't. You know, the example that for uh, just two weeks ago that I came across, I, I walked into a Walmart and there was the section of all of the factory farmed pork products. Mm-hmm. And right underneath it was a sign that said, barn raised. <laughs> Bar- <laughs> it, 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 deserves, it deserves a laugh, no doubt. And it, you know, in a way, it's uh, it's quite clever. Uh, again, ethics aside, it's clever because, of course, what we as consumers and eaters are looking for now are these other labels like free range and grass fed and barn raised. Well, you could add that to sounding just as pastoral as the others. And, of course, what it's referring to is that these animals spend their entire lives indoors in barns without 
any light coming through. They never see the light of day. That's the lives of these hogs, right? And But they are in barns, so it's true. And so this is what we're starting to see with the grocers is this effort to label factory food as, for example, barn-raised, as I've seen from family farms, which, of course, there's truth in that as well. But it's all there to paint a picture of of a different image of what, in fact, is happening. Yeah, and so I mean, how do we? How do we? I mean, I I, I, I like this quote: "War can be over if we want it, mm. and we can have factory farming over if we want it." But it's actually being able to see these possibilities, and um, and feel that we have these possibilities, and that's what you've been doing when you've traveled around the country. Is you're discovering people who are feeling and are actually um, living a different food life. Mm-hmm. Well, so, you know, the period of time that I was investigating food through my radio series and television series, what really drew that experience into this book, uh, this book called Grocery Story, was seeing just how powerless we might feel once we start to learn about what's happening, particularly in, in, in the farms and out beyond the grocery store shelves. And dis- despite focusing as much attention as I did for five years, I rarely touched the subject of the grocery stores. And I started to turn myself towards that subject and realize, you know, this is not something we're talking about a lot out in the good food conversation. You know, let's talk about grocery stores uh, because that's where we can be empowered. Right. So you're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, and we're talking with the author of the book, Grocery Store, The Promise of Food Co-ops in the Age of Grocery Giants, John Steinman. Um, We'll be right back after this break. Did I say stories? I've got to watch. Seward Co-op, serving the community for nearly 45 years, invites you to shop their two convenient locations, both offering the strong commitment to local producers and healthy foods you've come to expect. Seward focuses on locally grown and raised products, fair trade, and environmental sustainability. Shop their selection of meats, artisan cheeses, and house-made baked goods. Find Seward at 2823 East Franklin Avenue or the Friendship Store on 38th Street and 3rd Avenue in Minneapolis. More at Seward.coo. This is Chad, owner of AM950. Our station has worked with Barbara from WYSIWYG Web Design for years on everything from logo to print design and especially for developing our website. She does great work and is great to work with listening to what our goals and design ideas were while offering new, innovative ideas to create the website we are proud of today. Barbara made sure she understood our station, our goals, and our mission before she started working on our site and made suggestions to help control the cost. Plus, she's friendly, which set us at ease. I recommend Barbara at WYSIWYG Web Design because I know she will deliver an attractive, professional website within the budget you have. She is a local independent business that specializes in helping other local businesses achieve their website and design goals. She can work with nearly any budget and create anything from simple sites to robust custom functionality. To find out more about the company AM950 Trust, go to WYSIWYGWebDesign.com. Spelled out just like it sounds, WYSIWYGWebDesign.com. Hi, this is Chad from AM950. Snap Construction is arguably the most well-reviewed roofing, siding, window, and insulation contractor in the metro. Ryan is so excited about working with AM950 and our listeners that he wants to help us grow. This is Ryan, owner of Snap Construction. I was friends with Chad long before I started marketing with him. I was a bit skeptical of radio advertising before Chad convinced us to run ads. The advertising's been so successful, we want to help the station grow. We've absolutely loved working with the listeners of AM950, and we all know how extreme Extremely important this radio station is to the community. To help AM950 grow this summer, Snap Construction will be putting up proceeds to assist the station in marketing on social media. Snap Construction encourages you to follow, engage, share, and interact on the AM950 social media platforms. Together, we can all work to ensure AM950 continues to thrive and grow in our communities. We stand by our work with a lifetime craftsmanship guarantee. For a free estimate or more information on our financing, call 612-333-SNAP or check us out online. The Audubon Centre of the Northwoods on Grindstone Lake west of Sandstone offers a great variety of environmental learning experiences for people of all ages running year round. But did you know you can book your own event here at the centre? 
Check out our lakeside dining hall and the variety of lodging and meeting accommodations available. Visit us on the web at audubon-centre.org or call 320-245-ACNW. The Audubon Centre of the North Woods. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and in studio with me is the author of Grocery Story, John Steinman. Hi, John. Hi. Welcome back. Thank you. So uh, tell me a little bit more uh, about your beginning. How did, how did you even start with the food movement? Well, I studied uh, hotel and restaurant management for four years at the University of Guelph in Ontario, and uh, that's really where I entered into the food world. It was a program that was, I guess you could say, quite conservative in the sense that we were learning all about how to manage food, but we weren't learning about where all that food was coming from. We were really operating in a bit of a silo, which is exactly what's happening within the food system. Each segment of the food system operates in these silos. And But luckily, I was able to also experience some of the culinary side of food, having chefs come in and work with us in the kitchen, because we were learning about how to also run kitchens and um, as part of our restaurant portion of the program. And so I got to be introduced to some of the freshest foods that I had ever consumed. And we'd go out and visit with chefs who were sourcing products straight from the farms. And as a, at the time, 18, 19-year-old, uh, who grew up in the big city of Toronto, I ended up experiencing some flavors that I had never experienced before. And it really just opened up these possibilities for me in the kitchen and in my life to want to experience this more often. And so when I eventually left university and started going out into the work world, in my own personal life, these were the types of foods I wanted to bring into my kitchen. And immediately I noticed how difficult it was to source these foods. You know, most grocery stores at the time, this is, you know, early 2000s, most of the grocery stores didn't carry any of these products. And the idea of organic food wasn't yet on the big big grocery store shelves. Farmer's markets weren't nearly as prevalent as they are today. And so that began my journey into, I guess you could say, a follow-up to my four years of business administration education to really look at, okay, well, where's our food coming from? What are the systems that are preventing this really flavorful local food that I could certainly tell without looking up any peer-reviewed research was healthier for me? Uh, how can I find this food? That's sort of how, how it all began. And then you had one of the most popular uh, podcasts in Canada on a food podcast called Destructing, Deconstructing Dinner. What deconstructing did you mean? What yeah. did you mean by that? Well, deconstructing dinner was really exactly as you might expect, uh, taking the dinner plate uh, and rather than consuming it, taking it apart and seeing where it all came from and what are all the forces that are either allowing for these foods to make it into my kitchen or throttling some of these foods from getting into my kitchen. And so this was a way to yeah take apart the system that often we don't get to see when we're just sitting down at a meal, in a restaurant, at home, walking through the aisles of a grocery store and seeing the pastoral images of farms or the chicken pecking at the feed on the carton of eggs, you know, to really get behind all that and see where the food's coming from. That was the idea of deconstructing our dinner. So tell me more about that. Like what type of things did you see once you started to deconstruct dinner? Well, um, you know, one of the more recent experiences I had, um, particularly in the television series where I was, of course, much more um, present with what we were working with physically rather than simply picking up a phone or doing an interview within the studio. When we did the television series, I was able to get out and start to see some of what I had been working on on the radio side of things. And, you know, one of the places we visited was a egg barn in Ontario. And uh, so this was a certified organic egg operation. And this is something, of course, that has become more and more of interest to folks to eat particularly eggs that are coming from birds that aren't in cages, uh, organic food products. And so we booked a, a visit to a certified organic egg operation that was selling into one of the larger um, egg suppliers in Ontario. And so we walked into this barn, and I was blown away at first by the smell of ammonia. Uh, it was so strong that I could barely breathe. And I also was taken aback by seeing the chickens on concrete floors, thousands of them. I mean, I think in this one barn we were in, there was probably about 10,000 birds all on concrete floors, um, pecking around, you know, the food, which presumably was certified organic feed. And Maybe then, from China, though, because... Who knows? Yeah, yeah I mean, A lot of the yeah. certified feed and a lot of the organic stuff, they, they did get it from China to meet the, sure. the, the 
the idea of organic, right? Mm-hmm. Or- yeah, and to be fair, we didn't actually ask where exactly that feed was coming from. I mean, what was much more startling was were the conditions that these animals were in, the birds. And, of course, with certified organic production in both Canada and the U.S., it requires access to the outdoors. And so there were on this barn these small doors spread out uh, intermittently throughout the barn. And when we went outside to the other side of those doors, uh, looking at the grass, you know, where those birds would have been coming out, there was no indication that those birds had ever been outside. You know, the grass was a beautiful, green, lush lawn leading right up to the door of this building. So it was clear any farmer or expert or backyard chickener would know that when you have chickens out on any land, you know, they chew it up, they eat it up, and there's, you know, a area that's usually worn out. And so in this case, it was obvious that these birds were not getting out outside i ended up showing a lot of that footage to an animal welfare expert at the university of guelph who we interviewed for that series and he went through the whole list of all of the organic standards that this barn was not meeting um and sure enough the inspector ended up finding out about our episode and it sounds like that uh, farm got a bit of a, a a warning but so this was Many of the experiences I had, uh, whether it was egg barns or visiting the salmon farms out in British Columbia, which is a whole other experience I spent quite a bit of time doing, uh, seeing with my own eyes, you know, what is happening on within our food system, it, it, it certainly changed me and my intention with the radio series and the television series was to bring others along with that experience so that they too could see and hear about what was happening. And right now you're touring the, touring the country with your new book, um, Grocery Story. So tell us about this story, or mm. this book. Yeah. Well, so uh, throughout all that time I was working as a radio show host. I was also a board director of my democratically organized grocery store. So as many of your listeners, I'm sure, are aware, Minnesota is the epicenter, certainly one of them, of cooperative food stores, of food co-ops, of consumer-owned grocery stores. And Minnesota has the highest concentration per capita of food co-ops of any state. The Twin Cities, highest per capita concentration of food co-ops. And so where I live in Nelson, British Columbia, we have one of the only natural food co-ops in Canada, surprisingly. I think uh, that's one thing, certainly, since I've been in the United States. I am surprised. (laughs) Yeah. People think that, oh, it's Canada. There must be a whole network of natural food co-ops. And I live in a town of 10,000 people, and we have the largest natural foods co-op in the country, which happens to be surprisingly large uh, relative to the size of our community. But it is the largest in a town of 10,000 people. So I got to experience you know, the grocery side of the food system and, and, and saw particularly the impact that our grocery store was having on not just our downtown where our store was located and the amount of traffic that we were generating in our town, uh, but the impact our store was having on our local economy, the uh, way in which we had been opening our doors and our shelves to any innovative food makers in the area that wanted to establish themselves, whether it was a farmer or a baker or a kombucha maker or a gelato maker, you know, we were opening up our doors to all of these businesses. And when I got to Nelson, you couldn't find any of those products on the shelves of the big grocers. And so I immediately saw this possibility of our grocery store as the epicenter for change within the food system. And so when I left the board in 2016, having spent 10 years there, I embarked on wanting to write a book, not just about the big grocers, but about the promise of food co-ops in the age of grocery giants. And that's what we're talking about today. You're touring the country, Mm -hmm. um, and you're listening right now to Food Freedom Radio. Um, I also want to thank our sponsor, Seward Co-op. Co-ops, co-ops totally rock. Seward Co-op was an impressive co-op. One of the coolest co-ops I've visited. Love it, love it, love it. Listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950. The Fall St. Paul Art Crawl, presented by the St. Paul Art Collective, will be running the weekend of October 11th, 12th, and 13th. This is a must-do experience that you will love. The St. Paul Art Crawl showcases the diversity of art that St. Paul has to offer. By nurturing a vibrant arts community, the Art Crawl inspires artistic growth and fosters a creative exchange of ideas. Throughout the weekend, you'll have the chance to explore fabulous art while touring through local artist studios, lofts, and galleries. Hosting over 350 artists, up for purchase will be paintings, photography, pottery, sculpture, fiber arts, and more. And when you buy local art, you're 
providing to artists so that they may continue to create the art we love. The Metro Transit is supporting the local art community with a free transit pass for Saturday and Sunday. Download your pass to ride buses and light rail for free during the art crawl. Be sure to get all the details at stpaulartcrawl.org. That's stpaulartcrawl.org. When you need legal assistance, let the Hennepin County Bar Association help you find the right attorney. They have professional, experienced referral counselors who can connect you to vetted attorneys practicing in a wide variety of areas, including DUI, real estate, immigration, wills, injuries and accidents, and much more. Take the stress out of finding a lawyer. Call 612-752-6666 or search for Hennepin County Bar Association. The right call for the right lawyer. Litton's Party Value is your Halloween headquarters. All Halloween-specific items will be an extra 20% off our low warehouse prices. Litton's Party Value has its best costumes for toddlers, kids' favorite licensed costumes, and adult costumes. Litton's Party Value has a great selection of tableware, decorations, and props to put the haunt into your Halloween horror show. Shop Litton's Party Value's new location at 913 Plymouth Avenue North, Minneapolis. Free parking or shop Litton's online at partyvalue.com. Hi, Gregory Rich, founder and chief at Habitation Furnishing and Design, and now I'd like to invite you to kill your Sunday evenings with me right here on AM 950 with Drink in the Style. It's a one-hour-long conversation about interior design, art, architecture, and pretty much anything else, visual and aesthetic, all while enjoying some booze handcrafted by our friends at Gianni's Steakhouse in downtown Wyzetta. Can you think of a better way to spend Sunday evenings? Drink in the Style, Sundays, 5 p.m. Victor's 1959 Cafe in South Minneapolis is a locally owned and operated restaurant offering traditional Cuban food. Open for breakfast and lunch daily with dinner Tuesday through Saturday. For night shift workers, Victor's even has both a morning and evening happy hour. And Victor's now accepts dinner reservations too. Stop in and try some delicious authentic Cuban cuisine like ropa vieja and seafood paella. Make your reservation and learn more at victors1959cafe.com. Victor's 1959 Cafe, revolutionary Cuban cooking. With your AM950 weather, I'm Brett Johnson. Look for rain today with a high near 57. Tonight, partly cloudy with a low around 48. Sunday, sunny with a high near 59. And Monday, sunny with a high around 60. Ferndale Market in Cannon Falls is having their open house coming up this Saturday. They'll have a complimentary turkey hot dog lunch, local food sampling, live music, and a festive day in Cannon Falls. That's Ferndale Market selling the best free-range turkeys and having their fall open house this Saturday in Cannon Falls. Details at FerndaleMarket.com. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, and with us today is John Steinman. uh, He's the author of Grocery Story, The Promise of Food Co-ops in the Age of Grocery Giants, and he's also from Canada. Mm -hmm. So tell us more about the system in Canada right now. Yeah, you know, uh, what's happening in Canada within the grocery sector is quite interesting. It's uh, a little different than here in the U.S. Like our grocery market has become very concentrated into the hands of really just a handful of companies um, nationwide. So right now we have five grocers in Canada that are taking in over 80% of all of Canada's grocery dollars. Uh, two of those companies, the two largest, are taking in over half of all of Canada's grocery dollars. Uh, Loblaw is the largest with about 30% of the market. Sobeys has about 22% of the market. And so this is a tremendous amount of power to have. Uh, right, you're to, responsible for half the food <laughs> sold in the country. <laughs> yeah, these are the companies saying, you know, here's the foods that are going to make it to market and here's the foods that aren't going to make it to market. And in some neighborhoods, those might be the only grocers in your neighborhood. So you might actually be at the mercy of a duopoly or maybe a monopoly if it's just one of those grocers. And so uh, one of the things I've certainly been talking about is when we allow for any industry or sector of the economy to get so, so concentrated as we have in Canada, historically, when we look back, we can see certain behaviors that can often emerge when we allow for this level of consolidation. Um, One of those behaviors might be collusion. Collusion. Yeah, collusion. In this case, you know, the possibility of these uh, powerful handful or few companies actually working with one another to perhaps fix the prices on the shelves. And this is exactly what happened very recently in Canada. Um, I'm not sure if that news really made its way south of the border. So. I don't think it did. 
so here I am bringing the news. <laughs> <laughs> so in late 2017, uh, Loblaw, the largest of Canada's grocers, announced in front of the Canadian public that they had been cheating their customers for the previous 14 years. Wow. Saying that they had been fixing the price of bread, allegedly with Sobeys, Walmart, Costco, and Giant Tiger. Actually, I take that back. It wasn't Costco. It was Sobeys, Metro, Walmart, and Giant Tiger. Um, it's understood now that there was a price-fixing scheme underway. Uh, this this is what Loblaw had shared. And we now know that Canadians were likely spending about a dollar more for a loaf of bread over that period beyond what general food inflation would have dictated. And so people, of course, ask, well, why would Loblaw come out and announce this in front of the Canadian public? And certainly in our case, in Canada, if you are a whistleblower in a case like this, you can often gain some level of immunity within whatever investigation is going to ensue, in this case by Canada's Competition Bureau. So that investigation is still underway. It's being said that it will take years, which is usually how long these things take. And I've watched how these things unfold. You know, there'll be some fines, there'll be some slaps on the wrist, uh, and likely because of the length of time this investigation will unfold, uh, we in Canada will likely have forgotten that this even happened once any results are released. Well, and, um, and here's a statistic. Walmart accounts for about half of all grocery sales in about 35 cities in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so one of the problems with that concentration, I mean, we look at the patterns in nature. Nature is naturally diverse. There's a lot of great things that happen with diversity it makes you resilient it makes you anti-fragile um also i think it's more fun but (laughs) but but you look at a forest and a forest can can support hundreds of different types of birds but if you only have buckthorn only four different types of birds are going to survive so it's that same pattern is true in our economic behavior as it is in our ecological realities Mm -hmm. well and we see this in uh, every industry you know uh, technology computers software the fewer and fewer companies that are controlling these sectors of our lives the less innovation that we see in our lives in the economy in society in our cultures and certainly we can see this within food because of the throttling of the system that the grocers have been able to maintain so if you are an innovative food maker uh uh, a farmer focused on soil health, a farmer focused on, you know, protecting waterways. If you are a kombucha maker that's doing just something a little different, you're trying to get your product into the market, uh, that innovation is not so much rewarded because there are fewer and fewer grocers that these companies have to deal with. And so, you know, we are throttling the possibilities of food. We are throttling the possibilities of the food system to not just limit the impact it has on the planet and on people, uh, but to actually create a positive return in in all of those areas. So let's talk about the promise of Mm co-ops. Why are co-ops different? Well, you know, uh, co-ops are owned by the people who shop at the store. Um, So in this case, that would be a consumer co-op, which is how most food co-ops across the country are constructed. And, you know, one of the things that can often be misunderstood, certainly if you're not already someone who shops at a food co-op, is it's often thought that a food co-op is only exclusive to the people who become shareholders. And that's not the case. Right. Uh, Everyone can shop at a co-op. Anyone can shop at a food co-op. And so, you know, for any of your listeners that maybe aren't so familiar with the model, uh, I'll use myself as an example. When I moved to Nelson, B.C. and discovered my food co-op, I realized I could invest $50 and become a shareholder along with what's now 14,000 people who own my grocery store. And so we each have a share in the company. We are co-owners of this cooperative. We each have an equal vote, uh, particularly once a year when we vote for the board of directors. No one person has any more power in voting as any other, which is really important. And as a co-op, if we make a profit, which many co-ops are out to do, uh, those profits go right back into the business. And if there's excess profits, sometimes right back into the pockets of members based on how much you've purchased throughout the year. So what I love so much about it, and it really relates to what we were just talking about with the price fixing up in Canada, is with a co-op giving back some of its profits to its customers, it's basically the grocery store saying to its customer, hey, sorry, we charged you too much this year. <laughs> right? Here, here's a little bit back based on how much you purchased. The complete opposite to what, for example, I was just describing with the big grocers in Canada trying to gouge their customers. And this is 
you know, the promise of food co-ops that I speak of. Right. And mm-hmm. so it's wealth that sticks. When you can shop locally and support local, then we kind of circle around and we create wealth that sticks and then everything's okay. Well, uh, I'm certainly I'm, I'm hoping that's the case. <laughs> and it's kind of what I see happening where I live and it's certainly what I see happening across the country. Yeah. But you also talked earlier about needing to be patient because sometimes it does can feel like it's not moving fast enough, especially when we look at all the consequences of the food system. I mean, food system is a major driver of climate change. Um, and again, we have um, an incredible um, decline in pollinators, which is the result of the industrial farming. And yet most food is still purchased in this highly concentrated industrialized system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, I certainly, when I first got into this and began to get flooded with the information that certainly is what you're sharing here on the show of the challenges within our food system and beyond, uh, I certainly got into the work I was doing with some level of impatience because of the gravity of what we are becoming more and more aware of. And certainly there is a need for some impatience. Uh, Certainly you're speaking of the climate. You know, this is not something we can sit back and wait to fix. You know, we need to be actively out there working on this. That said, I did get to a place certainly in my experience of starting to get more patient. And part of that was just seeing that a lot of the work that we do in these small ways, whether it's in a food co-op or in our own kitchens, they eventually do ripple out. And uh, one of my favorite examples, uh, I, I carry around on my book tour now this um, copy of a book from 1963 that was published in Ontario. And the title of this book just says it all. The title is Margarine, the Plastic Fat and Your Heart Attack. Hmm. 1963. And and then how many Americans consumers were said margarine is more healthy, it's better for you? So it took decades. It took decades for us uh, at all levels of government, within consumer society, to finally recognize, okay, this is, in fact, the case. We know this now to be true. And so... I've started to look at a lot of the changes happening among the dominant grocers, for example, many of which are saying, you know, we're going to be done with cage-free eggs by, say, 2020 or 2030, or we're going to be done with sow stalls. We're going to be done with plastic bags. Uh, these were all things that gr- that food co-ops, as an example, had already been doing decades earlier. And so it takes time as we, within the sort of movement for good food, do our work, it eventually does reach uh, the more dominant systems. And so this is something I like to sit back and feel better about, you know, uh, let more patient with. Yeah. Well, and uh, one of the big differentials, uh, how the co-ops are different than the grocery stores is it's based on principles. Mm -hmm. Um, And concern for community is is a principle. Mm -hmm. And this is something, you know, I I love feeling when I walk into a co-op. So I've I've been to... um, about 80 food co-ops now (laughs) (laughs) and i still have two months left uh, so i think i'll be probably at about 130 by the (laughs) end of the year and so i'm really starting to get a sense for what i write about in the book but now a much more felt sense of the community that can be found within a food co-op and i was chatting with someone yesterday actually over at the seward co-op friendship store where we were talking about like that different experience that we can have walking into a food co-op versus any other type of grocery store. And the one thing that she acknowledged, and I certainly agreed with, is that when you walk into a food co-op, one of the things you can notice is that people actually look at each other in the eye. Like we, we look at each other, we acknowledge each other, and it is a sense of community. And Absolutely, that might not be what everyone wants in their grocery store. Uh, people might really d- appreciate walking into a grocery store and being quite anonymous and not having to look at anybody. But, you know, I think this is something we're missing in our day-to-day is this human connection, certainly with our phones helping drive the day-to-day. You know, that moment we walk into a grocery store, which for many of us fortunate enough to afford to or afford to be able to, we're walking into a grocery store every day, every few days, at least once a week. Why not turn that space into our community center? Well, let's talk about the affordability aspects. Because mm-hmm. um, um, are co-ops affordable? Well, affordability, of course, is in the eye of the person spending that money. Um, right. Certainly, this is one of the biggest questions that co-ops are challenged with. Uh, and what I think, you know, is... The, the first piece to look at is similar to what I just shared earlier. I mean, the one thing that we can know with a f- consumer-owned grocery store 
is a food co-op can't possibly gouge its customers. I mean, that's, that's I think, the first entry point into the conversation around prices, is it can't possibly gouge its customers, which I think sometimes food co-ops are seen as being a bit of a perpetrator in perhaps having prices that are too high. And a food co-op can't gouge its customers because all the profit made by that co-op goes right back into the businesses and, as, as I mentioned earlier, maybe back into the pockets of the people who are shopping. Again, the grocer saying, I charged you too much. Here, take some money back. So that's the first thing. And I think the other piece that's really important is that food co-ops alone, nor any grocery store, uh, is are, are going to solve food affordability issues on their own. You know, when we speak of a food affordability, it's not just about food prices. Mm-hmm. Um, we're only spending 7 to 9% of our income on food in the first place. Uh, in the rest of our lives, you know, we're talking about wages, we're talking about cost of living, we're talking about transportation. All of these pieces fold into food well, affordability. And this is where, if we can become um, uh, integrated in some ways, because mm-hmm. as, a, as a whole system, the entire system right now subsidizes corn syrup, which is one reason we're subsidizing corn syrup and then paying more for health care, and yet fruits and vegetables are too expensive, and that results in higher health care that we all end up paying. So how do we kind of wake up and go, I'm going to go back to that John Lennon mm-hmm. song, you know, mm-hmm. a war is over if we want it to be. Can this insane world be over if we want it to be, and can we make choices to make the world um to just be kinder, mm-hmm. sane and kind. Mm-hmm. That's what I want, a sane and kind economy. <laughs> and so the co-ops fit into that. I think they do. I think they do, too. Mm-hmm. So you're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950. The Audubon Center of the Northwoods on Grindstone Lake, west of Sandstone, offers a great variety of environmental learning experiences for people of all ages running year-round. But did you know you can book your own event here at the center? Check out our lakeside dining hall and the variety of lodging and meeting accommodations available. Visit us on the web at audubon-center.org or call 320-245-ACNW. The Audubon Center of the Northwoods. Thank you, Minnesota, for making Warner Stellion your appliance specialist for over 65 years. For a limited time, enjoy anniversary savings on select Bosch dishwashers. Get our guaranteed lowest price, then save more with free installation from our trusted specialists. Enjoy guaranteed savings on laundry pairs, French door refrigerators, or hit the jackpot. And get ready for the holidays with a new kitchen suite from one of Warner Stellion's countless choices. These and so many more appliance deals are available for a very limited time. From Minnesota's own appliance specialist, Warner Stellion. Supporting the best local and independently owned restaurants in the Twin Cities has never been easier. You'll find an expansive list of local dining options at eatlocalminnesota.com, from classic American comfort food to authentic flavors from around the world. Cafe Latte offers made-from-scratch soups, salads, sandwiches, and mouth-watering desserts. Stop in the wine bar and enjoy a unique pizza loaded with fresh vegetables and perfectly roasted meats. Over 30 wines by the glass, Cafe Latte highlights Washington State wines and is the perfect destination for date night or an evening with friends. 850 Grand Avenue, St. Paul. Victor's 1959 Cafe has been serving South Minneapolis traditional Cuban food for over 15 years. Victor's is open for breakfast and lunch daily and now accepts dinner reservations too. Stop in and try the Pollo Tropicale or the Sandwich Cubano, which was featured on Food Network. More at eatlocalminnesota.com. Total Dog Company has a great rewards program. It's called the Frequent Barker Card. You earn punches on the card based on the amount you spend, one punch for every $10. After you get 12 punches, you can redeem the card for $10 off a purchase. Everything we sell qualifies, so you get points and use points on things you really want. The Frequent Barker Program at Total Dog Company in New Hope, right off of 169 at 9432 36th Avenue North, and at TotalDogCompany.com. Tom Hartman here telling you that solar energy isn't just for environmentalists. Switching to all-energy solar is actually perfect for reducing your carbon footprint while also saving money on your monthly electric bill. The fact that solar panels cause no earth-harming emissions while it's producing energy is a bonus. Who in the world could object to that? But they can also help you save money month after month for decades. And they do it with a clean footprint. So go green and start saving money today by visiting allenergysolar.com. Imagine there's no heaven. Welcome.
Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we imagine a food system that's good for water and soil and people and for future generations. We imagine a food system that feeds us in 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 more ways than just these mechanical ways that that, that we seem to be obsessed about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and uh, in studio, you're listening to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Headline. In studio is the author of Grocery Story, um, John Steinman, The Promise of Food Co-ops in the Age of Grocery Giants. So, um, you've been traveling 80 food co-ops. What do you see as the future of the cooperative food movement? Yeah, well, things are definitely shifting for food co-ops. You know, as one of the things I write about in the book and I've been giving at my talks at many food co-ops, co-ops are now competing with some of the largest grocers in the country and on the planet. And that wasn't the case, uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago. They had the territory of healthy food, (laughs) cage-free, organic. Oh, you go to the co-op if you want that. They started that movement. Absolutely. We started that movement, not they. We started it. We. We were part of that movement. You know, and in the the 1990s, uh, food co-ops were thriving. If you were around as a food co-op, if your doors were open, people were flooding through the doors to look for alternative food source and so a lot of the success that we saw with co-ops really began uh, exploding in that 1990s period as people turned particularly to organic food and more natural foods and then of course the interest in local food more recent but the big grocers began getting into organics in the early 2000s they are responsible for helping move the organic food movement to what is now as i understand a 50 billion dollar industry uh, and the big grocers are also now interested in another piece that has often set co-ops apart which is local food um food that is being grown whether in the neighborhood of where the food co-op is or within the region where the grocery store is operating and so the big grocers are now interested in this too and are marketing it in some cases genuinely and some cases disingenuously and so food co-ops are now in this place of having to face their success uh, you know um right in front of them and so co-ops i think are at a stage of needing to not just adapt to the changing consumers that many grocers are now adapting to but to really start to communicate strongly what sets the model of this ownership apart and to really start to more precisely define what local is because what the big grocers are doing is trying to take the idea of local and expand it to wider and wider regions um i use examples in my talks of companies from michigan large grocery giants from michigan who are saying local is now the entire upper midwest and this is something that as consumers we might want to trust the grocer when they're labeling something as a local product but when you have a grocer like uh, this one from Michigan saying local is in the upper Midwest, you know, people I think are walking in and, and, and believing that that's the case. And so co-ops are, are now competing with this. And so I think there's an opportunity for co-ops to take it to the next level, you know, to be the change that they were in the 1990s. And what we're seeing, thankfully, is a growth in food co-ops and interest in food co-ops. There are now 100 food co-ops in development all across the country. Existing co-ops are opening up new locations, expanding, modernizing their operations, becoming much more um, business-like, if you will, uh, than they even already were. And so this, I think, is the new wave of food co-ops. And I see a promising future from what I'm observing among the food co-ops, yeah. And you'll be um, in town later on today, so you want to tell us about where you'll be speaking? Sure, yeah. I've been in the Twin Cities for the past week, but uh, I do have one more event uh, just outside over in Long Lake at Harvest Moon Co-op. I'll be there today, um, and I'll be speaking at 1230. I'll be offering a talk and signing books starting at 1030 in the morning. So your book was also funded by a Kickstarter campaign, which was kind of exciting. Um, but one of the things you also had that I want to make sure we get in is who owns your grocery store? Now, a lot of us are familiar with Sam's Club is owned by Walmart. But some of the other ones, um, like like who owns um, Trader Joe's and Aldi's or Whole Foods and Amazon? Mm. Yeah. So one of the questions on the back of my tour van, um, the, the question on the back of my tour van is who owns your grocery store? And so anybody driving behind me is going to be confronted with this question. And I think it's a really important question, so much so that there is a resource now on my book's website where you can look at all the big grocers in America, where they're located, and what banners fall underneath those companies. And so you'll get a company like Whole Foods, which, yes, is now owned by Amazon. You'll get companies like Trader Joe's, which many believe that is still an American company, whereas, in fact, it is a subsidiary of Aldi. But to be clear, not the same Aldi that we see the signs for in front of the Aldi stores. Uh, Aldi 
split into two companies in Germany at one point. One of them owns Trader Joe's here in the U.S., and the other owns the chain of all these stores that we're seeing pop up everywhere. Um, and so, again, this is something that many of us as consumers might not be aware of. These beloved regional chains or American chains are, are ending up in the bellies of larger and larger grocers. And um, one of the things, too, happening here in the Twin Cities is you'll have a chain like Cub Foods, which also is very well spread out through the region. And many are unaware that it is now owned by one of the largest natural foods distributors in the country, uh, which recently acquired SuperValue. So UNFI, United Natural Foods, acquired SuperValue, which now owns Cub Foods. And UNFI has said that they want to sell that chain. But again, it's something that uh, we as consumers, I think, should become aware of because the future of our grocery stores is really dependent on who owns them. And so this question of who owns our grocery store really can help us understand, you know, is this grocery going to be in my community for much longer? And what will it look like in a year or two years time? You know, when it comes to what's local, I am I really think ownership is 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 the keystone. I mean, AM 950, we're owned by a person who only owns one radio station. And when we look at local ownership, it, it actually is key for autonomy. Um, but in a world that just operates in, in a way that's causing the climate crisis and is causing the sixth mass extinction on the planet, what sits behind all that? Mm-hmm. And, and, and what can create something better? And I think autonomy, freedom. Mm-hmm. And, and and so this this connection between freedom and, and choice mm-hmm. and community. Mm-hmm. What I love about the co-op movement, uh, not just food co-ops, but the whole co-op movement, because uh, we have many different types of co-ops here in this country and around the world. What I love about it is it helps us democratize our economy. So Yay. we don't have to just be part of our democracy once every four years <laughs> or, you know, over that four years during political campaigns and have a voice through that. You know, we can actually in the day to day practice the democracy that we are trying to cultivate here. And we can do it at our grocery store when we own it and when we can vote once a year for our board of directors, when we can sit in a room because perhaps the co-op's not doing well, you know, and talk about, you know, what are we going to do next? And, you know, the one thing I love about that model as it applies to grocery stores is it means that our grocery store will never all of a sudden put up a sign of a big chain because it sold itself out. Right. In order for that to happen, our grocer, our co-op board would have to come to its <laughs> customers and say, hey, should we sell our co-op to a chain? And, of course, that doesn't happen, and it's never happened. So it is the most secure way for us to ensure our grocery remains in our communities. So John John Steinman, the author of Grocery Story, The Promise of Food Co-ops and the Age of Grocery Giants. How do people learn more about you? Well, the website for my book is grocerystory.coop, C-O-O-P. And my book is also available on all the online bookstores. Uh, hopefully some of your local bookstores are carrying it. You can always order it online. And, uh, yeah, you can check out my food co-op directory on my website and learn more about the book and learn more about the book tour as well. And uh, book's also on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome. So thank you. Thank you for coming. And you can check yourself out, check out at Harvest Moon. You'll be there later on today at 1230. And, yep. and so you have a wonderful weekend. And thank you so much for your work. And thank you for listening to Food Freedom Radio. Mm, thank you.